So in uh, mid-December of this last year, I was sitting on my couch in my jammies, scrolling through Facebook, and I came across the picture of a dead three-year-old in the surf of the GNC. And I opened up the article and I read it and was, was horrified to discover he was not the first. And I wondered where the world's outrage was, like, like how is this possibly happening repeatedly? And somebody should probably do something about this. And then I realized I am somebody. So I turned to my husband and said, I think I'm going to go to Greece. And he said, all right. <laughs> and I found myself on a tiny island in Greece called Lesvos um, with an amazing team helping with the Syrian refugee crisis less than a month later. So we sort of had a routine as a team. <clears throat> We'd get up about five o'clock in the morning and we would scour the beaches looking for bodies um, of the people who had attempted the crossing and whose boats had sunk. Most of the bodies that we found had life jackets on and much to our horror, we discovered that they were fake. They were filled with cardboard or styrofoam or clothing. I found a pair of baby shoes once. Um, so they were sold a false promise of security, which failed them, and they didn't make the crossing. And we'd do that till about 8 o'clock in the morning, and then we would go to the common boat landing sites, and that's the ones that were the directest route from Turkey to this island. And most of the boats came there, and from about 8 until 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we would help Syrian refugees off of the boat. We'd give them dry clothes, and we'd give them food, and we'd give them medical. Um, before they were put on the bus and sent to the registration camp. At about um, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon, we would go to the registration camp, Moria, which was a former prison um, meant to house about 2,000 prisoners. And at any given time, there were three or 4,000 refugees there waiting to officially seek asylum and continue on their journey. Um, and from there, we'd stay until about 10 o'clock, and then we would go to a very remote lighthouse on the tip of the island where we'd go up on a giant hill above the lighthouse, and with heat-seeking binoculars, we would look at the Turkish coastline and the water in between Turkey and Greece, hoping to spot um, boats in the water packed with humanity um, so we could send them help before their boat went down. And this went on day after day after day for the 21 days that I was there. Um, a couple of people stood out to me during that time. The first one was a, about a middle-aged 40, 45-year-old man. As he stepped off the boat, I said, welcome. And he, he looked at me startled, and he said, where am I? And I said, well, you're in Greece. <laughs> and he said, they speak English here? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, 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 I'm American. And he took a step back and he said, American, why are you here? Americans are afraid of us. And I said, it's gonna take more than one soggy Syrian to scare this American. Like, <laughs> I'm here to help you. And he threw himself in my arms and he said, thank you, Mrs. Thank you. You don't need to be afraid of us. We're afraid of the same things you're afraid of. And then he just sort of disappeared into the crowd as, as they, they did, they had to get on their way. The second one, was a 17-year-old boy who stepped off the bow and again caught my attention because when I said welcome, he responded in English. And his name was Kasim. And Kasim's two older brothers had been kidnapped by ISIS and his father had been beheaded in the driveway trying to stop it. 
And so Kasim's mother had gathered up about 2,000 US dollars and gave it to him and said, Kasim, you have to leave before they come for you next. And so at 17 years old, this boy made his way from Syria to Turkey and then got on a boat and successfully made the journey and stepped off the boat into my company. And so, um, you know, after hearing his story and chatting for a little while, we put him on the bus and sent him to Moria. One night in uh, one of my Moria routines, I'm walking up and down the hills of Moria. Lesvos is uphill both ways. Like it's the only place in the world, both ways. So I'm walking up and down these hills and we're looking for people that, that need help, basically. And it is pouring rain, like torrential rainstorm. And I look to my right and there are literally thousands of people without shelter, without food, they're starving, they're hungry, they're wet, there are infants screaming, there are children, there are old men crying. And the futility of what, was, what I was able to do suddenly just hit me. And I put my head back and I put my hands up and I just let the rain hit me in the face, hoping that people wouldn't notice how, how hard I was crying. I don't think I fooled anybody, but when I put my head down and opened my eyes, out of the crowd comes Kasim. And he's got a hot cup of tea, and he hands it to me, and he hugs me. And he said, don't be sad, Mrs. Don't be sad. We are strong Muslim people, and we're already safer than we were. Nobody is killing us. Nobody is making us fight. So don't be sad for us. We're going to be OK. This child comforting me, and I was supposed to be there for him. So from that point forward, for the rest of the time that I was there, I had this bright yellow jacket like they wear up north on the slope, thanks to my husband, so I was easily identifiable. So when I would enter the camp, here would come Kasim with a hot cup of tea, <laughs> and he would show me the most vulnerable families. He would show me this, this family is six and they have no tent, and this family has four children and they haven't eaten in two days, and this family has no diapers. And I would turn to my teammates and say, how much money do you have left? This is what I've got left. I'm going to call my husband and see if we've got anything on the credit card. And we would collectively put money together, go to the store, and Kasim would take me to the neediest people that, that he could identify, and we, we would give them what we could manage to buy. And when it was time for me to go home, I was so ready to go home, and I was so not ready to go home. And I'd been home for probably a week when I realized that I can't change the world. I can't make them stop bombing Aleppo. I can't make them stop fighting in Syria. I can't make the Turkish smugglers quit dealing in human trafficking and killing people in the sea. I cannot make Macedonia open its borders so they can continue their journey. I can't do any of that. I can't change the world. But while I was there, I changed that family's world because I got a tent. And I changed this family's world because I found formula for their infant. And I changed that family's world because I fed their children for the day. So um, even though I can't globally change the world, I made a difference, at least for a day, um, as best I could. And that's why I'm going back in February. <laughs>